The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm John Plunkett. This week we're coming from Ad Week Europe 2014, where a host of celebrities, creatives and marketing gurus have descended on London's Piccadilly for talks and panels on the state of the industry. Today we'll hear from James Corden defending the BBC's decision to move his youth channel BBC3 online only, to Martin Sorrell on the legacy of Edward Snowden and those NSA revelations, and why ITV's commercial director believes 90% of all branded content is crap. Plus, we'll have reaction to the Radio Academy nominations, The Guardian wins big at the British Press Awards, and Trevor MacDonald talks diversity in the news. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And with me today is Mark Sweeney, who is, of course, the media business correspondent for The Guardian. Mark, thanks for dropping by. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're, we're winding down the end of a busy week. Yeah, we've been here for three days at the Ad Week uh, Europe conference, but it feels like three weeks. But I, I mean that in an entirely positive way. It's, it's classic conference, isn't it, where, where you're here for just a couple of days, but you feel like you've been here for months, like you're camped out. Apparently there have been press awards, Sony nominations, all that stuff. But, you know, we've been in the bubble. Yeah, but inside the bubble there's been incredibly interesting talks. Yeah, and talking of which, what's been your highlight of the week? Does it involve, uh, is it Jason Seekin and Martin Sorrell? Give us a clue. I'd, I'd have to say it was probably the high-powered uh, head-to-head Robert Thompson and uh, the chief executive of News Corp and, and, and Sir Martin Sorrell, the head of WPP. Uh, it, it was somewhat collegiate, a bit of a face-to-face, but still some very interesting things came out of it. Uh, Sorrell's comments about Edward Snowden and Thompson's uh, rather... Uh, negative comments about the Washington Post and their journos and their digital strategy. So what did he have to say? What did he say about the WP? That's WP as opposed to WPP, the as Washington Post. Washpo. Yeah. All right, okay, got you. Does anyone call it the WP? It might just be me. Thompson in his... <laughs> It'll catch Wash, on Washpo, after. Washpo, yeah. I think we're after. That'll do. Thompson, uh, rather, uh, I'd say, typically forthright uh, Australian comment, just came straight out with it. He, he, he referred to journalists such as uh, Bob Woodward from uh, Washington uh, Post as um, high priests and sort of referred to the fact that Bezos might do really well on the, on the distribution side and strike some partnerships to get the paper out there, do some things on the commercial side, but editorially and culturally he's got a big challenge. That's that the, the Amazon owner, Jeff Amazon, Jeff yep, Jeff Bezos, who, who bought the Washington Post, saved it, White Knight. Thompson said he didn't believe that Bezos saw it as a trophy uh, buy, but he did say he was going to have a lot of problems with it editorially, changing a culture where newsrooms don't want to change, where, where the, uh, the newspaper themselves should be happy that these journalists, thankful that these journalists are working there. So uh, they, they weren't the, the kindest of comments. And uh, Lachlan Murdoch just been given a big new job at News Corporation. What did he have to say about that? Oh, they, again, this is where it became a bit collegiate. Um, Sorrell hinted that he, he should come out with that sort of question in not so many words, but they didn't. They waited until the very, very end to get onto it. They were almost leaving the stage. And uh, Thompson re- returned a reply of, I'm sure I'll be asked a succession of succession questions. And that was that few chuckles from the audience. Well, thanks for that, Mark. More from you in a moment. But right now, let's turn to James Corden. It's been a month since BBC Director General Tony Hall announced that the BBC Three TV channel would shut down and it'd go online only. If the shock is still settling in for programme makers and viewers, nearly a quarter of a million of them have signed an online petition to save BBC Three. Corden disagrees. In a rare defence of the BBC, he came out and said, well, actually, sticking it all online is a good thing. Let's hear from the star of Gavin and Stacey, and more recently, The Wrong Mans. Well, I, I, I know I'm in a, a sort of public minority, but I'm kind of for it, in a way. If they were saying we're closing BBC Three and this avenue is closed to new writers and creators, then I would be as outraged 
as, as people are about it being on TV. But the truth is, provided there's still a commitment to it as a channel, and there's investment in young writers and young performers and young directors, um, and it's programmes that are aimed at a new and fresh audience, then actually online is the best place for it to be, I think, because that's how people are consuming their television now. You know, t- TV is changing, and the way that people are watching it and consuming it is completely different, particularly a younger audience who are, you know, going to university with a laptop and maybe not a TV. And, you know, BBC Three even started, you know, their biggest shows, like Jack Whitehall's show about education premiered on the iPlayer a week before it went on TV anyway. So I think it should always be at the forefront of what is fresh and exciting, and therefore it should be the first BBC channel to exist online. But do you think a show like Gavin and Stacey would have broken through if it had been unknown only when it, when it doesn't have that sort of simultaneous broadcast where everyone, everyone watches it at the same time? Well, the truth is I don't know if, if Gavin and Stacey would be commissioned by BBC Three today anyway. I don't know if, as a show, it would have been picked you know the, the, the channel has changed it was in 2007 that we made that show so so what's I'm changed not... that, that I mean it wouldn't be commissioned well as a word it's a much younger outlook and I think our show and Nighty Night and things like that would, would exist because those shows don't tend to be on BBC3 right now as they are you know what I mean they would probably be on BBC2 or maybe BBC4 you know it's always changing people saying oh but would you be happy for your show to go on BBC3 if it was just online if I was sat here telling you that I've just signed a huge deal with Netflix, you'd be going, wow, that's amazing. Do you know what I mean? It, it, you, you can't see it as, oh, it's no longer a channel because it isn't on TV. Provided they still invest and it's still a commitment to make new and interesting shows, then its audience will find them in the same way that you and I are really enjoying House of Cards. And your last BBC2 series, of course, The Wrong Man's, that was a co-production with Hulu, yeah. which, like Netflix, is on demand. Is that the way you see the future? Is that the way things are going? Looking abroad, looking to, to different sources of revenue beyond the kind of mainstream broadcasters over here? Well, ours, that came about because for us to make the show in the manner that we wanted it to, to look and feel... Visually, it had to look a certain way, and that takes more time, and time is the thing that costs the most money when you're filming stuff. And, and it was Mark Freeland, who's the, the Commissioner of Comedy and Drama at, at the BBC, who said, well, look, let me go and try and find a partner. And Hulu came in at script stage. Before we'd even written episode six, they said, we like this show and we'd like to commit to making it. And it was that investment that, that meant that we could... Um, I guess just make it on a slightly bigger canvas, I guess. And people talk about a golden age for TV drama, but what about in comedy? Is it a golden age for comedy? It feels like, from an outsider's point of view, it feels harder to get the big kind of breakout hits immediately than it did, say, five years ago. I think, I think if you look at a, a show like Miranda or Mrs. Brown's Boys, you know, um, and then you, Fresh Meat and uh, Toast of London, which I think is a really great show. And, but I think that in terms of drama and the dramas that we're all enjoying so much, certainly that, that internationally, uh, I think have come about through a change in film, really, a change in, in movies. Big studios are making less films, but bigger films, if you like. Your sort of Thors and Avengers and, and, and movies like that are... Uh, are taking precedence and people are perhaps not making as many small interesting movies as they used to be and that is meaning that there is a mass of talent who want to make their stuff in a certain way with a certain voice that are finding that outlet on you know channels like AMC and HBO and Showtime and Netflix and all of those you know there's a great platform there 
for people to tell a great story. And, and uh, I've always loved television as much as I've loved film and, and sometimes more. You know, I don't know if I've watched a film recently that has meant as much to me as that last season of Breaking Bad, you know, and I think that's great. You, you guest edited The Sun, of course, to, to mm. great acclaim, but one thing everyone noticed was you put men on page three, which felt like a, it felt like a blow for the no page three movement. Was that, was that your intention? What, was it, what were your thoughts behind that? Uh, I just felt like if I was actually in charge, if I was actually, you know, editing the paper, which, you know, it, it, it's always, a, it's, how can you ever really truly, you know, be doing that? But I, I, uh, the biggest thing was that they were making a commitment financially to sport relief, which I thought was amazing. And I, uh, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to um, have a woman with a top off. That's it. I mean, there's no greater thing than that, really, other than I just didn't want to. And will there be a second series of The Wrong Man's? Yeah, we're, we're, we're working on something right now, and uh, I hope people will enjoy it. That was James Corden speaking to me earlier. Now, let's look at some of the other stories making the headlines at uh, Abweek Europe. And, uh, Mark, you had breakfast with Telegraph Editor-in-Chief Jason Seekin a while ago, or maybe you and a hundred others more like yeah although I did manage to snare myself a front row seat I was quite keen to hear what he might have to say about the, the future of the Telegraph given the, the, the dramatic changes he's made in about four months meaning the departure of Tony Gallagher and, and, and some of his views on where the Telegraph should go and he's not a man that makes too many public appearances is that, is that fair to say Apparently so. I'd not met him before. He seemed a, a very gregarious man. He, he started off with a little bit of a display of uh, uh, some drone technology, including a mini one, which buzzed around uh, Ronnie Scott's a little bit to show you the bringing a bit of the Hollywood vistas that you can use for covering uh, investigative journalism, which is quite interesting, actually. But then he got on to the meat of it, which was talking about his view of the Telegraph and where they might go. Um, he had some interesting comments to say about that. For example, uh, he again beat the drum. He, he believes the time is over of what he referred to as imperial editors. This idea that the editor sort of wanders around, makes all the decisions, and, and then everyone sort of toes the line. He, he gave an example. He, he had the digital director of content there. She was, she was rather young. Um, nowhere near as experienced as you would see a normal editor of a print title, but he pointed out what he believed was a first in Fleet Street was that she had the exact seniority of uh, any of the print editors there, which was... I think an unusual step to make. He also went on to say that as the business turns, a telegraph is going to be a, a digital native business, a global digital native business. And as such, he made an interesting comment about its position on politics. He said, as a global business, its political stance, which obviously you define a lot of the newspapers here in the UK by, by how they sit on the, on the political spectrum, he said that's not enough globally. It's not enough of a differentiator. So he said they're going to have to go out with a bit of a different model. He then said there's going to be more coverage of things like entertainment, which although he didn't say it to my mind sounded immediately like what the mail online have done to achieve great leaps and bounds particularly in the u.s i don't mean to say they might go to the lengths of where the mail might go on entertainment coverage and quote marks however it seems like a strategy where we might see a bit of a mail light uh, he also beat on the drum that you're going to see uh, that, that everyone is a bit more mobile a bit more social a bit more digital okay so so big changes so when he talks about imperial editors that's basically editors that we're used to over here in the UK. You know, uh, one guy, one, one woman, you know, calling the shots across everything. But he says, no, that's not, that's not the way ahead, certainly not of the Telegraph anyway. That was exactly what he was saying. He seemed uh, to, to touch on that there's going to be, you know, the, the, the catchphrases we're hearing, more, more data, more customer information. He said giving the consumer a voice. Um, 
he said also they want more me stories uh, and he said a me story sounds a little bit like a crossover between sort of consumer and, and data driven journalism he said for example if we cover the budget we really want to get under the skin and break it down and punt it in all sorts of different directions to the, the, the many audiences they have so he sort of put a bit of a telegraph or a bit of a seeking spin on some of the things that we're hearing quite a lot of uh, that all newspapers are really seeking uh, he also uh, he was asked in a Q&A uh, his view on the BBC now remember he's a man who was at PBS he said that um, un- unlike uh, the well-funded BBC, although he called them he called them heartily funded, uh, he said PBS was two dollars a person equivalent in, in the US. He, he didn't want to go too far. He was careful, uh, but there was a little bit of a, a warning, a caution tone in there. They're very well funded. They don't have commercial pressures. So well, maybe they'll come in on the license fee debate a bit f- bit further down the line. Yeah, BBC. Always needs more friends in the media, but yeah, probably not going to get one in the Telegraph, yeah. Uh, and those drones, are they going to deliver the Telegraph to your front door? Not, it's not that kind of drone. This is not bad news for paper boys and girls and men and women. No, it's not, it's not, but they, they have a drone guy uh, who was, he was quite interesting. His name was Lewis, um, uh, surname alludes me. But he used Lewis to be, the drone guy. He, he used to be a barrister. He makes them in the front room. Uh, he's got about 10 drones, so he says it's quite cost-effective. So he, he's, he's really been taking it to heart. But they showed some quite good footage. They showed uh, how it can be used, for example, the Philippines and Haiyan, where you, you couldn't get in. He said other journos were looking for, for helicopter rides into areas or, or uh, uh, sort of you know, queuing to, to get access. Up they go with the drone, way they go. Um, there are no sort of legal limits and things when you're in, in sort of destruction zones overseas. There are more limits in the UK, how high you can go, where you can go. But they showed some interesting shots of, of the flooding. And they, they, they sent in a little drone and, and did some coverage and actually zoomed in and came close in on a car which was empty. They thought, well, maybe we need to check it out. What if there's someone trapped in there? So it, was, it showed some great footage, uh, really, of what you can do with it. Still felt a little bit niche to me. I don't think we we're all going to have drones in our back pockets uh, in the near future when we go out as journalists. But it was, it was an interesting introduction of where you might go. Yeah, I've not got a drone, I'm just pleased to see you. And just to tear ourselves away from Adweek Europe to look at some of the other news uh, this week, Mark, it's the end of Nuts magazine as we know it. In fact, in its entirety. It sure was, and it was a topic that came up on a News UK panel at Adweek. There were six of News UK's uh, most senior uh, editorial and commercial uh, directors, people like Katie Vanek-Smith and Eleanor Mills, and the question was asked, and and, uh, it was Eleanor who said it's a step in the right direction, it's progress, and then she paused and she said, oh, but it's not really, if you think about it. There's a torrent of internet porn out there that's two clicks away. So all we are is seeing them trade uh, you, you know, paper turning in a cubicle for clicking on a mouse in a dark room kind of scenario. Right, yes, I won't dwell on that image for too long. Yeah, but we should say, yeah, yeah Nuts, uh, of course, which was launched by uh, IPC back in 2004. And it was a massive success. 300,000 copies a week, by all accounts, at, it, at, its, at its peak. Um, but, you know, it's been going downhill, what, ever since uh, Big Brother lost its popularity? It sure was. It was a behemoth. Although, in the context of, of, uh, of this session, I found it quite interesting uh, that they were talking about this issue. But no one, of course, raised about page three, which is an ongoing issue. Um, and I spoke to Eleanor briefly afterwards, and she said, well, my views are on the record. If someone had asked me, I would have jumped out at that as well. But it was an interesting juxtaposition. We're you know, obviously talking about the, a negative publication in terms of women and, and, and they were talking about everyday sexism and these sorts of things but actually you know News, News Corp um, or News UK has its own issues to face doesn't it and of course a lot of sympathy for everyone or anyone who loses their jobs as a result of that but at the same time I think you know a lot of, not many people as far as the content goes will be mourning its demise uh, more news in just a bit but let's hear from some of the other people that have been attending Ab Week Europe 2014 And I'm joined by Sky's Director of Entertainment Channel, Stuart Murphy. Stuart, thanks for coming. Pleasure. 
very big day for you guys on Monday. It's the return of, uh, return of Sky Atlantic's biggest show. That's right, Home of Thrones. Um, we're doing a big countdown on screen about it. I think it's, hopefully, it's the series that's going to go crazy. Uh, we've done lots of press and we're going to simulcast it in East Coast time, New York, before West Coast, which is a huge concession from HBO, but testament to our deep love of HBO and our good relationship and how much we love Game of Thrones. The fact it's grown is a testament to you've got it available on demand, the first three series. I mean, that, that's a sign of how TV is changing. A, a few years ago, people wouldn't have been able to, to revisit those first three series. So this fourth series, you'd have been hamstrung by that fact. If you've not seen it, it makes no sense whatsoever. But like, as Netflix had done with Breaking Bad, uh, you know, you can revisit these shows and, and you, can, you can build an audience from scratch almost, despite the fact it's Series 4. That's right. I mean, you'd have to be quite dedicated to pile in and get all three, three uh, series of gore, sex and, uh, and love and all that type of thing. Hell but of a binge. Hell of a binge, <laughs> yeah. You'd probably need a cigarette at the end of that one. And another big show coming back is Mad Men. And you're thinking about doing a similar thing, an early morning US simulcast? Well, we're, what we're thinking about is how we make it special. The example I just gave in the session before was... Do we look at simulcasting it? That might not be the right thing with Mad Men. In the previous series, we did 1950s inspired adverts of modern brands. So we had, I think, uh, shampoo that was shot specially for the launch of Mad Men in 1950s style. People loved that. We had little interstitials where we had the kind of black silhouette of a guy falling through the shot. I think customers and viewers love it when big brands are playful and they're intimate and they're basically saying we know how you feel because we feel the same way too so we need to do something fun I don't know if it's simulcasting uh, we've had a bunch of ideas that I think should take people by surprise but um, I'm not going to tell you any of them right now is it weird that it doesn't get bigger, bigger audiences? I'm not making a comparison with what it used to get when it was on the BBC, but the fact that it's so talked about and generates so much heat, and yet, you know, in relative terms, and also across the, the series, it still doesn't get, you know, bigger ratings. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it gets higher ratings on Sky Atlantic in Sky Homes than it used to get on BBC4 in Sky Homes. So, you know, we're pleased about that, and I think that's because of consistent scheduling. I think, but, but you're right, there are certain shows that are not about ratings, so Girls is, is one of those, I think Mad Men is one of those, and from my point of view, we're trying to um, always judge shows by two things, either huge amounts of people come to them, or a smaller group of people are obsessed with them. I think the worrying thing is when something gets neither really high ratings, nor is really, really loved. We know Mad Men people are obsessed with it. So we're running the first half of the final series uh, this year and then the second half of the final series a few months after. You talked today about the whole kind of creative process and you said a, a former Sky chairman once told you that you only need three big hits a year, which might, might not seem many to some people. <laughs> Who was that? Tell us about that. Um, so, yeah, it was James Murdoch at the time. And I think the point he was making, I actually think if I only had three hits a year, I wouldn't be sitting here now, to be totally honest. But it was just trying to make the point that some creative industries uh, get fractious about failure and actually we can't worry about failure. Uh, you know, it's a kind of necessary byproduct of a hit. I think the, the worrying thing is the dangerous middle ground where you know, you're a 10 million pound striker. You cost a lot of money, but you might not deliver the goals every single match. Or you're an expensive show that's moderately expensive, but not huge, but you don't get the ratings or the love to justify it. Or you're an actress that's quite good looking, but doesn't really get the big roles, but you're expensive. So you need to really go for it to break through, is the point he was making. Pre previous places I've worked, people will obsess to the nth degree about a failure in a really unhealthy way. And you'll get kind of creative 
paralysis where you're too nervous or ashamed or you've been fired so you, you can't come up with anything else. That's antithetical to the creative process. I think what you need is support, enthusiasm, you need people to care about you, to get where you're coming from and you need people to protect and cherish the delicate little thing that is an idea and support it, not bulldozer in and ruin it and, uh, and if, it, if it goes wrong to crucify the person who came up with it. Guardian is at Ad Week Europe, and I'm speaking to Sir Martin Sorrell, Chief Executive of WPP. Hello, Mark. Hi there, nice to see you again. It was only it's a few good to be ago back in, back York, at, talking it? to an Australian, I mean, uh, New Zealander again. Don't go there again. We started <laughs> at the Australian New Zealand thing. But speaking of Australians, yes. you were speaking to Robert Thompson, yes. head of News Corp. And Australian as well. Well, I'm intrigued. About a year ago, you mentioned that Google was about to overtake News Corp. Which they have. Yeah. Has that happened? Yes. So you haven't increased spend despite the split? You haven't bought into the split makes it more valuable? Oh, no, I think the split does make it more valuable, certainly from a stock market sense. I mean, it's gone from 55 billion to about 80 billion in a, a year or so. So from a stock market point of view, no doubt that it's added value to its share owners. So I think it's been, it's been good. But, you know, you can't, you can't fight the tide. And the, the tide is that newspapers and magazines, if you look at the data, you look at the Group M data, Newspapers and magazines have lost, they've lost about 25% of their share since 2006. Well, you say last, can't, you say last, can't last eight years or so. Sorry, you say can't fight the tide, but you did make some positive comments about I know, the, I do, the, the I digital do. side of newspaper. No, that's, I'm talking about the legacy side because the, you know, the, the, so that's like the paper guardian, not pay per guardian, the paper guardian. The and the paper, the, the paper guardian obviously has issues in terms of attracting advertising revenues because. Consumers are spending more time online, particularly with the rise of smartphones and mobile. They're spending more time online than they are offline. And there's a generational shift. I mean, it's the trite thing to say, but you know, we, all, we all say about our kids and our grandkids, you know, boring everybody. Uh, but you know, when you see those films of six-month-old babies um, sort of flicking at, flicking at newspapers because they don't... Yes, yeah, 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 I mean, it, it is... Even I do that, you know. I'm more than six months old. You mentioned uh, Snowden. You said yes. People aren't taking it seriously enough. We have spoken around. No, the I said. I said. I, 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 it's not the. Uh, my, my point was. I think it's it's very important that that, that people are not uh, are underestimating its significance amongst consumers. Uh, and then you, if you ally it with the hacking things that we've had, so because the the two issues, as we said in the the thing, one was, you know, the privacy issue. And then there's a security issue. And I think if you solve the security issue in a way you solve the privacy issue because people know that their data will be secure. Uh, and then you, you, on the privacy issue, you basically engage with them and you say, this is what we want to do. This is the data that, that we want from you. And this is what we're going to do for it uh, or with it. Rather than having these, these tortuous things, you know, when you're, you're asked to accept or deny uh, a long agreement, which... You know, if you if you actually spent time reading it, it, would drive you crazy because of the legalese. And if you sent to a lawyer, it would take about two months. By which time you've got you, you've lost any interest in the application or the site you're being asked to to opt into. Basic, uh, don't underestimate the impact of Snowden or indeed some of the hacking. Uh, issues that we've seen in America. Although Thompson seemed to say it was a bit sensationalised, didn't he? Wasn't that one of his last No, things? I don't think he was sensationalised. I think, I think what we were saying was, I mean, the revelation that Huawei had been hacked by NSA sort of brings a little bit more balance into it. 
Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I'll, thank you, Mark. I might ask you about your operating margin next time. <laughs> that was Sir Martin Sorrell talking to Mark Sweeney. And you can see that interview at theguardian.com slash media, where you'll also see this next interview with Simon Daglish, the commercial director of ITV. The commercial exec was at the Ab Week conference to talk about Twitter Amplify. He told me all about it. We've been working with Twitter for some time, and Twitter have tested uh, this product they've got called Twitter Amplify uh, in the US, which has been a great success. So we uh, were very keen to, to work with them to launch it here in the UK, and we'll be hopefully launching it over the next uh, couple of months or so. But ostensibly what it is, it's allowing brands access to the Twitter sphere, if you like. So to give you an example, um, if, say, Morrison's were sponsoring, which they are, Britain's Got Talent, and it's a fantastic act or something that happened that's very, it's very interesting and has a wide appeal, uh, we'll clip that very quickly, we'll serve it via Twitter, we'll go out on the Twitter feed, and that can be delivered by Morrison. So Morrison's could put, have you seen this? Isn't that a great act? They can have some sort of interaction with the audience via the Twitter feed. So it's really just extending uh, not only our ability to showcase little clips of our content, but also allowing the advertisers to be part of that conversation. Is there a, is there a danger of, uh, Martin Sorrell always goes on about how mm. viewers don't like sort of brands interrupting their social media experience. Is there, is there a danger that ITV, BGT fans will go, hang on a minute, what's Morrison's doing in my Twitter feed? You know, I, I Absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes back to the session we had this morning. It has to be relevant. So in that instance, I'm using Morrison's because that they are the sponsors of BGT. It needn't back necessarily next week, back next week. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be them. I mean, it has to be relevant. It has to be nicely curated, nicely done, which is why we've taken a few months uh, to work with Twitter on what's right and what's wrong and understand uh, that ecosphere, if you like, to make sure that any communication doesn't jolt or jar and not just putting the brand there for the sake of it, it actually has to provide a benefit. You have some harsh words today for, uh, for, for brands who consider themselves content companies or, or media companies and want to create their own content. Yeah. You said, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, someone else raised the bar to 99.9%. To be fair to you, you said 90% of content is crap. Yeah, no, well, no, yes, yes, it is. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to go into whether it's 99 or 90% of it is crap. But I think one needs to be careful in this world of anybody can produce content. Everybody's got a video camera now. Everybody's got a mini studio. And everybody thinks they can produce content. Actually the game is producing great content. And that's fabulously difficult, really difficult. I mean, we've been trying to do it for, well, we've been doing it for 57 years and we get it wrong. We pay billions of pounds a year to get that content right. So for a brand just to leap in and go, actually, I can do content now, here it is, it's great, isn't it? No, actually, you have to be really, really, really good at it. And there's a warning sign to numerous brands out there for all the great successes we can name, uh, Nike, Red Bull, a bit of Guinness, the first kiss that came out uh, recently. For those sort of four or five brilliant examples, actually there are millions of examples of appallingly produced content by people who think they can do it. Uh, so be careful, it's, it's just a warning. That was Simon Daglish and uh, Mark, we're gonna step out the Abweek bubble just once more and strain our synapses to try and work out what's been going outside of uh, BAFTA and uh, Piccadilly. Uh, but there was of course the launch of London Live on Monday night. Well, they did have a session here, actually, which was about one hour before, or it ended about one hour before uh, the channel was due to go live, which was at 6.30pm. Uh, it was an interesting session, but they had James Kahn uh, of Dragon's Den. He's a man who's quite used to handing out a bit of critique, and they had him on a panel. And had lots of the big cheeses there, the editorial director, Andy Mullins, uh, uh, the architect, etc. 
culture. And uh, he did make one comment where he said, "Well, I'm, I'm not really sure about your branding. Really, I don't, I don't really know. It doesn't. You don't have a strapline, do you? Really? Um, I think you should be majoring a bit more on London and why London's the, the number one you know, capital city in the world. Uh, probably not what you want to hear about 45 minutes before you've got to jump in a cab and, and race down to Kensington to, to switch the go light. Really? They should have asked him a few weeks ago. Yeah. Although it didn't stop them handing out glasses of champagne at the end, and, and then Stefano Hatfield, the editorial director, and an entourage raced down to Kensington High Street, and, and away they went. And interesting review in the Guardian, which said, uh, you know, the quality might not be there, but as far as uh, the diversity and putting more black, Asian, minority ethnic people on screen, you know, it, it put some of the mainstream broadcasters to shame. It's true. I actually got emailed an image of an, an ITV advert which showed uh, uh, a lineup of their their entertainment uh, offering, and, and it had your usual suspects, your aunt and your decks, and bits and pieces. And let's just say there wasn't a hell of a lot of diversity there. Now, I did watch. I, I must admit to geeking out. I remote recorded uh, London Live. Uh, while I was coming back from Adelaide. dedication, listeners. Yeah, remote record even. Look at that, digital. Um, Remote recorded it to watch it. I I wasn't convinced with the the opening, the very first clip of the presenter on the South Bank. They must have pondered long and hard over what the right intro is. I wasn't convinced that all right was really kind of the best way to intro it. Give us that again. (laughs) But I will say they they got got lucky. Who knows? Serendipity. The launch of Noah was on the same night, so they were able to to, to get in rope and a few good interviews there. They did get 22,000 uh, viewers to London Go, I think was was what it was called. 22,000, I mean, you know, not bad. BT Sport certainly couldn't couldn't shout about their numbers. And they had Claire Balding, a, you know, the, the London 2012 presenting heroine. And they couldn't get numbers off the ground at first. So oh, they'll be they'll be buoyed by that, I would, I would argue, on their first night. Yeah, well, Noah wasn't a sinking ship. So let's uh, see what happens to London Live. And uh, finally this week, and I've got, qu- got a question for you, Mark. It was the Sony, uh, well, what were previously known as the Sony Radio Academy Awards. In the absence of a, a, a giant uh, electronic uh, sponsor, they're now the Radio Academy Awards. And uh, here we go, three stations nominated for UK Station of the Year. Radio 2, Radio 4, and Talk Sport. Now, no pressure. Don't give me that look. Who's going to win? Oh, my God. I've got, I've, got no, I've got no clue. Shall we go for Talk Sport? Why? Yeah, oh, that'll do. Yeah. Wait, who, what, who got it? Who got it? Well, we don't know yet. These, oh, we no, don't these know. Are the I nom- said they've announced it. <laughs> these are the nominations. Are they announced the nominations this week? I know you're only kidding me. Uh, no, no. The, the, uh, the event itself will be in a few weeks' time. But, um, uh, no, but there was an awards, and I just missed what it was. There well, was what, it? Not the newspaper awards. It was another one. Well, the newspaper awards, yeah, which, uh, which the Guardian uh, won uh, National Newspaper of the Year, which and we website. should add. And website. And many yep. other awards, too. Uh, yep. And also a good night for the, uh, for the Mirror. Uh, well, Mark, on that, awards, uh, on that upbeat awards note, uh, Mark Sweeney, thank you very much for joining us. Back to the bar. Finally in this special podcast, Sir Trevor MacDonald was here earlier in the week to talk about his long career in TV news. I caught up with him for a chat about diversity on the small screen and the time pressures today on rolling news reporters. In the news business, I think, um, which I know very well, I think diversity has made great strides. And I think it's philosophically essential. If you're broadcasting to people, um, to a community which is very diverse, which is very mixed, then what you do has to be seen by them as accessible and credible and I think one way of doing that obviously is by making sure that you have or that your shows show the diversity that, 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 that they should. The world is becoming such a sort of complex diverse place in any event that in any field if we fail to reflect that I think you're going to be at a disadvantage. I think Glennie Henry has a point and uh, and um, I, I hope that people listen to what he says. And speaking to, to the audience here today, you used quite an emotive phrase. You said, you said there can't be an apartheid, almost. 
in terms of media and how they represent the, the population. Well, I don't, but I don't, I mean, that would be obviously quite unacceptable. I mean, you know, it, it makes good sense. An advertising person obviously has in mind the people that, that, that he's aiming at, and he has to make sure that his message covers a wide enough range of people not to be seen as in any way kind of exclusive. And I think the same thing applies to people who purvey news or people who plan uh, uh, films in the, in the acting profession and so on. Diversity in this age, in an age of, we talk about globalization and we talk about how easy it is to move from one country to another, how easy it is to understand different peoples because of the way the world has become. It will be unthinkable if people in the media, people in the acting profession, don't take cognizance of, 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 of those things. It's true, on a, on a wider issue, it's a very different uh, media environment now than it was when you were presenting News at 10 in terms of Twitter and 24-hour news, which has exploded. What, what are the challenges, for t what do you see as the, as the biggest challenge for TV news right now? I think there are two. One, getting to all these places, which some of which have become much more dangerous. Um, I don't know what you think, but I don't particularly want to end up in Syria these days. And the speed at which you, you have to do things. 24-hour news is a ravenous beast which needs to be fed constantly. At times, I wonder whether people get the chance to actually deliberate and to think carefully about how you explain complex political issues. Not easy. It took me a long time. I would spend nights working out what you make about the situation in Beirut or in Northern Ireland or in, you know, in, in Zimbabwe or in Southern Africa, in India, in Japan. These days, you have to turn up and you have to let people hear you know, on time what's, what's going on. It's a, that's a challenge. Can that have, actually have a, a corrosive effect then on people's understanding? Do you think that's I think that perhaps corrosive is too strong. But I think even people who do it would tell you, you know, after about 10 days, I learned much more than I did after the first 10 hours. Um, that's life. What, what has been happening recently in the Ukraine? You know, it's, it's not a simple story. There are many kind of complex issues. You know, you can make a determination about the action of one person or not and say, that's bad, this is good. But it's a very, very complex situation. And for us in News at 10 and, uh, you know, trying to get to these things, the question was, how do I make Syria accessible to somebody living in the south of London? Why, why should they be interested? And working that out, occasionally takes a little time. Today, it seems to me you have little less. That's it for this week. My thanks to all my guests, to Mark Sweeney, and of course to everyone at the Abweek Conference who helped put this together. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.